the two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of the prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the socks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melts away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God, or he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with your father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours even to death. For you do not tell this business of ours. Then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by the rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, for or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house, your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors or your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we, will, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell us this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, 
and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is the word of the Lord. In this chapter, we find ourselves just on the cusp of Jericho. Six miles away, the Israelite army looks on and see that this will be the first city that the Lord gives to them on their conquest of Canaan. And if you were here with us last week, Joshua gave an epic speech to the people of Israel, reciting that the promises of God are real and that this land is theirs. Victory is in their fingertips. And I just want to reiterate, I hope that you guys had a chance to go back and really read Joshua chapter 1. Um, I know most of us, when we read Joshua chapter 1, we try to do it in our quiet time format, where it's really quiet with a cup of coffee. But I encourage you to read it with the Lord of the Rings soundtrack in behind you, or listening it. It makes the speech that much more epic, and you actually begin to realize, wow, this speech is ama amazing, because Joshua declares all these things, but the most beautiful part of the whole speech is that the people in unison recite back to him, all that you have commanded, we will do. All, wherever you command us to go, we will go. And these people are 100% behind Joshua. And they end this beautiful chorus saying, only be strong and courageous. They repeat the actual words of God that God had spoken to Joshua. It's amazing and it's beautiful. So usually when we're watching this in the movie, we would expect them to charge right after this emotional speech. But actually what happens is we get chapter 2, a unique scene in which we see the spies deployed out into Jericho. And I believe the author purposely places this scene here to make us pause and stop and consider what God is about to do. Chapter 2 serves a very important function in not just telling the history of Israel, but telling the history of redemptive salvation to the people of God. For here in chapter 2, we do not only, we are not only introduced to Rahab, but we are introduced in how salvation works, not just for the Israelites, for all the people to come. So we see in chapter 2, Joshua deploys two spies. And what are the function of spies? Why has Joshua done this? Well, the spies serve as analysts or people who can gather information about the land. Joshua has the full confidence that God has given him Jericho, but he needs to know how God has given him Jericho. Are they supposed to go by the west wing or the north, uh, or the north side or the south side? Are they supposed to attack with arrows? Where is the weakness? And he is sure that the Lord will give him this information. Are the people small? Are they bigger than the people? Any information that will allow him to win without any casualties is his intention for deploying these spies. I like this quote from Colonel David Hackworth. If you find yourself in a fair fight, you did not plan your mission properly. 
So the whole objective is to see how the Lord has given Joshua an advantage in this current conquest. So then we see that the spies go out into the land and they find themselves in a house of a harlot or a prostitute. We meet Rahab for the very first time. And as I was preaching this sermon uh, in the morning, I realized that I have two main purposes in preaching this sermon. One is to tell you about the power of God and his words. And the second is to make sure that all future daughters born will be named Rahab. I think Rahab is uh, one of the most underrated characters in the Bible. Um, I know this because I don't know any Rahabs. I know a lot of Ruths. I know a lot of Esthers. And I know a lot of Marys. But no Rahabs. But Rahab is someone who is praised and adored in the Bible. She is truly one of the great pillars of the faith. But yet we often don't talk about her, and so that is one of my goals, that whoever has a daughter next, that you would name her Rahab. But first, we meet Rahab, and she is a prostitute, and she is housing the spies. And so when you read all the commentators, the first question is, why are they in a prostitute's house? And there have been many commentaries that come up. First one is, the obvious one is, the men got distracted during their mission. And they just made a detour into this prostitute's house. I don't think that's the reason. There's uh, the, the most um, common reason that all commentators have said is because her house was in a strategic place. You see that she lived inside a wall, which means that there was an um, escape that they could accomplish if they had to escape. Uh, she had a good lookout point. And so these spies saw Rahab's house, and they went into it because they knew she had an advantage. That's the consensus among all the commentators. I think they're wrong. This is an exclusive from Jeffrey. Here is why I think... They were in Rahab's house. On that premise that Rahab is underrated, I think people fail to see how brilliant Rahab was. The only reason Rahab is housing these two spies is because she chose to house these two spies. These two spies are the worst two spies in the history of espionage. Think about it. Everyone knows why they're there and that they're there. Rahab saw them, like, oh, no, 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 you need to come here. The king saw them, and the king's like, yo, they're at Rahab's house. Go find them. Everybody knew they were there and why they were there. These spies should not get any credit or any praise for their strategic decisions. It is Rahab who understood why they were there and acted quickly. She is the one who saw the writing on the wall and saw that she needed to pursue them quickly because they had the answer to something she has been longing for. But the question does remain, why do they keep emphasizing that she's a prostitute? And that's a worthy question to consider because Rahab will be mentioned again in the New Testament, and unfortunately, she is always referred to as the prostitute. In Hebrew, they talk about her, saying that she's a great woman in the faith, but they still call her the prostitute. We'll see her again in James, but James calls her Rahab the prostitute. 
most likely when we see her in heaven, we won't mean it, but we'll say, hey, you're Rahab the prostitute. But why is this important to God? Because I believe it's there for a purpose. It's not just a way to categorize her. I think it's there to remind us who she was in society, what her status was. There's all these elements telling what kind of person Rahab was. She was poor. She lived in a wall. She didn't even have a home. She was literally on the fringes of society. She had no status, had no money. She was an outcast, which also means she was the perfect candidate to be used by God. We will see time and time again it is God who uses the meek and the humble and the poor for his purposes. It is never the rich or wealthy person that he uses, but it's those who are on the fringes, the misfits, that he uses mightily. And I got to thinking, why? Why is this always the case? Is it because God simply wants to show he can use anybody? I think that's part of it, but I think there's another thing that I begin to realize about Rahab that I've noticed amongst other poor people. Poor people and Rahab have an understanding of life that nobody else has. They are more in tune with reality than the rich are. You see, the poor are able to see that life is very fragile. And that's the reality of life. The poor also see that there are circumstances out of their control that they cannot simply will themselves out of a certain condition. That's reality. They also see that they are at the mercy of others. That is reality. And I think God uses people in these conditions because they are the most real. They understand life better than everybody. And we see all these characteristics come out in Rahab. Rahab does not stutter. She is a woman of great conviction. She does not, when she pulls the spies in, she does not question them. She simply knows who they are and she understands exactly what's going to happen. Verse 9, she says to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land. She sees with clear eyes that there is no hope for this city. She understands that what they are about to do to this city is completely destroy it and that she needs to depend and side with them. And she gives her reason of how she knows this information. How does she know that the Lord has given them the land, it's important to hear what she does not say that's instructive to us. What does she not say? She does not say, I know that the Lord has given you of the land because your army is huge. She does not say that. She does not say, I know you're going to beat us because, man, look at your weapons. You are going to beat us. She does not say, you have more money than us, therefore you're going to beat us. Nor does she say, I hate this city, Jericho, so much, I want you to destroy it. She didn't say any of those things. What does she say is the reason for her conviction? It comes in verse 10 and 11. She says, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, 
before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For, and this is the great confession she makes, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What Rahab realizes faster than anybody is this, that Yahweh is the true God of the universe. What she also realizes is that life and death belong to God. She also realizes that salvation comes only from the Lord. What she realizes early on is the gospel. She understands that her life is, the, is in the hands of this great Lord. She will be praised for her, her, for her ability to see this message clearly. And for those of you who may say, I don't think she saw the gospel. She did. And everyone understood she understood the gospel. That's why in Hebrews and in James, they continually praise her. What a woman. No one evangelized to her. She just heard rumors and she began to understand truly this is God. But her realization is not what makes her a great pillar of faith. It's what she does with that realization that makes her a wonderful person to emulate and follow. What does she do? She enters into a covenant with the people of God. What makes her stand out amongst all these people is that she had the wherewithal and the knowledge to ensure her safety by making a covenant with these spies. Verses 10 to 21 is all the stipulations of the covenant. You would wonder why is there so much language going back and forth of what this relationship was going to look like. Remember, they go to great lengths to say you have to have a red cord outside your window. If your family is outside this house, we're going to kill them. If you tell anybody about our plan, we're going to kill them. If, you, if they're all in there, we'll save them. If anything else happens, we're going to kill you. 10 through 21 is not exciting reading, nor is it edifying reading, but it is the longest and biggest portion of the book because God wants us to see this is how God operates. He primarily operates through covenantal relationships. And why is this so important? Because it shows us how we are saved. Our salvation does not depend on our belief alone. It is actually when we enter into the covenant with the people of God are we saved. Now some people might say, I don't think so. And that's a good thing to say. But let me show you that simply knowing who Jesus Christ is does not garner your salvation. For we know that Rahab is not the only one who believed in the works of God. The whole town believed that the Israelites, what they did were true. Everyone understood that it was Yahweh who was leading the way. Everyone saw the writing on the wall, yet none of them chose to go out and say, we declare peace. Nobody did. 
they all faltered. It is only Rahab who enters into the covenant. Look at the New Testament. Demons acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Are they saved? No. It is only when you enter into a covenant with God do you garner the benefits. And for all of us, we have entered into a covenant of grace with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what saves. It is our belief that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, and it is our inclusion into the covenant that saves us. And I think this is also an important thing to realize because it's primarily why the church is so important in our Christian life. The most interesting thing I think about this whole episode is how Rahab garners salvation um, for her family. Remember, she makes this covenant not just with herself personally. She says, okay, I need my dad, mom, and, you know, whoever is somewhat associated with them. I want them all saved. And then they say, do it. Now, it's interesting to think about this. She had three days to explain this to her family, that Yahweh is the God of the universe and that Israel is going to come and take over the land. And I'm sure the family members said, you are crazy. I don't believe anything you're saying. And I believe that she was just like, you just get in my house and you just stay here. And we see in Joshua chapter 6, verse 25, as the destruction happens, the only people saved are Rahab and her family members. And what's comforting to me is this. I bet you that not everyone in Rahab's family was fully convinced of what she was convinced of. I'm sure people had doubted her, but did it matter? The covenant is what still saved all of them. And I think in the same way in our church, we place too much emphasis on the individual walk with God. Yes, it's important, but we are a covenant of believers. Amongst us, there are Rahabs, strong in the faith. They see Jesus clearly, and they lead us, and they lead the way to seeing Christ more clearly. But there's also of us who are like Rahab's family. We say, I don't believe it fully. And sometimes we rack ourselves with guilt. Maybe I'm not a good Christian because I don't believe that well or I don't believe as strongly as Rahab. But what this shows is it doesn't matter. It is once you are in the covenant of grace, you will always be in the covenant of grace. Despite your feelings, despite what, you, uh, what mood you are in today. It is something objective, outside of us, what keeps us safe. People of God, I hope that you would see that God was setting the foundation for all of redemptive history. It is Jesus who has saved us, not our feelings, not our good works, nor any of those things. And it is when we are entered into the covenant of grace that we are truly secure and safe, despite our beliefs. And I believe it is this action that Rahab performs That makes her a pillar of the faith. She garnered salvation not only for herself, but through her wit and through her ability to convince, she saved her family as well. And we will find out later that she is an important person of the faith. And why? 
because it is through her lineage in which Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is born. God saw her and saw and used her mightily, not just to save her own family, but to save humanity. Matthew chapter 1 lines the whole lineage of Jesus, and there are only four women that are picked out in all of the Bible, and Rahab is one. Also, when Hebrews, the author of Hebrews begins to talk about the stalwarts of the faith, he begins writing in chapter 11, everyone who is a great example of faith. He writes about Abraham, Jacob, Moses, and the fourth person he mentions is Rahab. And then he lists a bunch of names. They're like, yeah, there's a bunch of other names. I can go on. But he puts an emphasis on those four. James chapter 2, when he's talking about justification by faith alone, he, does, he says, and here are the two examples where I see most clearly justification by faith alone. One is Abraham and Isaac. And the second is Rahab and the spies. Brothers and sisters, Rahab's great ability to see the gospel is what sets her apart. And it's why she should be praised and adored. What faith she had. Mind you, no one evangelized to her. No one was actually seeking out her salvation. She merely heard the acts of God and believed. It's an amazing feat that we should all revel in. But brothers and sisters, I don't want you to simply think that this whole message is about Rahab. She is an important figure, and yes, she should be honored, but she is not the protagonist of this story. For it is the word of God that is the protagonist of this story. Rahab only points to the power that really saves. Rahab, in entering the covenant, is only acknowledging all that she has heard. She has not done anything grand. All she has done is says, I have heard the good news of Yahweh and I report it to you. I want to be one of you. And how do we know that the word of God is the main star of this story? By the ending. As the two spies escape and leave Rahab's house, their whole mission was to report back to Joshua what great advantage they had. And when they come back, they have a glowing report. They said, surely the Lord has truly given us the land. And it's important to pause and hear what they did not say. They did not come back and say, we got them. Their wall stinks. We got them. We have way better weapons. We got them. We have them outnumbered three to one. They don't say any of those things, nor do they say we have a great ally named Rahab. They don't even mention her. They come back and they say to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given us the land for what purpose? We have heard the words of God. The words of God have stricken their hearts and they have melted. The gospel has gone forth and they don't have a chance. And this is what compels Joshua to charge in chapter 3. It is not anything that they have or possess. It is not anything that the Lord is going to do. Simply that the word of God now resides in Jericho that they no longer have a fighting chance. And this spoke to me greatly because oftentimes what we do is doubt the word of God. 
we doubt that the word of God has any power in our life. Oftentimes, as a preacher, I always think, man, if I could just articulate my thoughts a little bit better, man, more people would come to the faith. Or if I said, if I was a little bit better of a storyteller, man, I'm sure people would hear the gospel more clearly. Man, if I was way better looking in 6'4", I'm sure people would come to the faith. It's irrational, but that's what I often think. And I think when we go to evangelize to folks, we say, people won't listen to me because I have nothing of value to say. People often forget that we possess something truly powerful. Even as a church, when we, sometimes when we think of how we're going to reach the neighborhoods, we often think we need more money. We need better pastors. We need better music. We need a better building. We'll often think of all these reasons, but yet Joshua 2 continually reminds us, as long as you have the word of God, anything is possible. Oftentimes we don't even see if the gospel is being talked about in our neighborhood. We see how can we deploy our resources to take over the neighborhood. But in truth is, all this neighborhood really needs is to transform. Is yes, money would help, but they need the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So my charge to you today is this. Be like Rahab and believe in the gospel. We do possess something very powerful. It can take down cities, right wrongs. Cure injustices. The power of God is real. We don't need to wait for money. We don't need to wait for some policy to be enacted. We can simply go out and spread the news of Jesus Christ. My hope is that one day we'll go out there and we'll come back and you'll say, Pastor Jeffrey, Astoria doesn't have a chance. They have heard the word of God. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you that you are our beloved and that you give us your attributes and your love and your mercy to give to the world. Lord, we long to be like Rahab, to believe and to enter into this covenant with you, which we are a part of. But our hope does not stop there. Our hope is that more people outside of this covenant would hear the word of God and join this glorious procession to heaven. We pray that you would be seen in Astoria and in New York. And that all may come to the saving knowledge of you. And glorify your holy name. We thank you God. We pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen.